let's just be real about something right now. And that is the right won't reform the left. Only the left will reform the left. The left won't reform the right. Only the right will reform the right. We tend to reform from within and which is one of the reasons why in-group dissenters are often the most ruthlessly attacked because they're the most threatening to any kind of movement within any particular side. We're back with The Empire's New Clothes. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. In a moment, we're speaking with David French. He's got a very interesting history, which we'll get into. And he spends a lot of his time now writing about the political divide in the US between the left and the right. David himself is a conservative, so he spends a lot of his time critiquing the right. If you like anything you hear today, make sure to check him out on Twitter, or he spends a lot of his energy writing on The Dispatch. Here we go. David, well, thank you for joining us today. Much appreciated. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you're in Tennessee. Yes, I'm right outside of Nashville in a town called Franklin, Tennessee. Okay, cool. I actually grew up in Atlanta, in Georgia. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so Southern boy originally, but moved out west, so. <laughs> so where where are you right now? Oh, um, about an hour north of Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. So been here oh, about my eight, goodness. Eight, 10 years. Okay. Yeah. It's actually quite nice. So it's helped, you know, actually it's very funny reading a lot of your articles in preparation for this interview. You somehow seem to be so good at seeing both sides in, in a very clear light of what are the the issues and contradictions with the right? What are the issues and contradictions with the left? And you're able to critique your own side and the other. And I found that very refreshing. And reflecting back on myself, I noticed I was able more to do that. Being here in Canada actually has helped give me perspective on the American dialogue. Well, I imagine you feel a little bit of distance from it. And when you're not sort of like in the middle of the maelstrom, you can kind of stand apart and evaluate it a little better. I mean, I, I know for me, when I just said, I'm just, I'm not a Republican anymore, but I'm not a Democrat either. And I didn't Mm. have a specific political party that I was rooting for. It really helped sort of, it, it really helped give me that sort of necessary distance that I think you need when you're trying to analyze what's happening in a country and a culture. Yeah, you most certainly do. And maybe maybe walk us through a little bit of like who who is David French now? What <laughs> I know that your views have transitioned a bit over the years. So maybe explain a bit of that um that journey, that transition. Yeah. So I um so I grew up in in the South. I was born in Alabama, raised in Tennessee and mainly Kentucky. Went to college at a Christian college uh, in Nashville. Went to law school at Harvard in the early 90s when really, um, a lot of people don't realize this because you know we have this recency bias that says that political correctness or whatever it, it has never been what we, you know, we called it political correctness then, which carried for a while, but now people, I guess, call it wokeness. It's never been so bad. You know, the, the, um, the anger and the, language policing. Well, I'm here to tell you in the early nineties in law school, it was unbelievable. I mean, it, it was unbelievable. <laughs> and so, you know, this was the era of shout downs in class. Uh, this was, 
uh, an era in which, you know, there's this there's this article called Beirut on the Charles that was written, I believe, in 1993 hmm. about Harvard Law School. And if you read if you, it, a friend sent it to me in PDF form and I read it again and it was like ripped from the headlines 2021, <laughs> the way in which people oh, interacted with each other. And so I, I kind of emerged from from law school with two, two, two kind of two kinds of identities. One was as a civil libertarian. In other words, I was very much interested in the Bill of Rights and defending the fundamental liberties in the Bill of Rights for everybody, right, left, you know, Republican, Democrat. So my legal career immediately got very focused around the First Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, mm-hmm. the 14th Amendment. And so I was very used to interacting with and debating, I mean, interacting with and defending people from all walks of life. But at the same time, I was a pretty darn partisan Republican. Uh, I, I, was, I was very much committed to voting Republican, um, you know, got involved in politics. Uh, I was more involved in, in law than politics, but got involved in politics and I would so I would say I was a partisan Republican, but also a civil libertarian, which those two things in some ways could kind of be in tension with each other. Um, but in 07, 08, uh, I joined the military kind of late in life. In 07, 08, I deployed to Iraq uh, with the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment. And I was there for almost a year. And I saw the Sunni-Shia civil war up close. And I learned something about that conflict that I think a lot of people kind of missed back home. They kept thinking of it as a conflict mainly around religious differences, and there were religious differences or conflict mainly around political differences, and there were political differences. But it was much more conflict about grievances and animosity. So if you talk to somebody, you know, a Shia fighter and said, why are you fighting? They would not say because of, you know, some millennia old theological dispute they would say because the sunni killed my cousin and if you ask somebody who is a sunni fighter it'd be because the shia killed my uncle so they had this sort of these grievances against each other so when i came home from iraq in 08 i began to notice a very similar dynamic emerging not as serious of course you know it wasn't the democrats killed my my grandmother or the republicans killed my you know niece or whatever it was but there were still grievances. There was just this endless list of grievances and an escalating personal animosity. And you saw this reflected in the way in which, you know, with your own eyes, the way in which people spoke about people on the other side or interacted with people on the other side. And you also saw it in the data where this thing called negative partisanship was just ramping up and up and up. And at the same time, after serving overseas and serving with guys from every walk of life, every political point of view, I was getting less partisan. I wasn't getting less conservative, but I was getting less partisan. And so I felt like I was zigging while the whole culture was zagging. I was getting less partisan while everybody was getting more partisan. And then by the time 2015, 2016 rolls around and Donald Trump's Republican nominee, um, and he was in so many ways, everything that everything that I opposed as a conservative Christian. I mean, this this was a guy, he was deeply dishonest. He paid hush money to porn stars. He had been accused, corroborated accusations of sexual assault by many, many women. 
um, if I had told a 1998 Republican that in, you know, uh, uh, just 18 short years, they were going to be uh, defending and supporting somebody with a record of sexual misconduct worse than Bill Clinton's, they would have been insulted. But there we were. And so I just wasn't going to be a part of a party that was going to unreservedly get behind Donald Trump. And so I I said, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> As yeah. I was in the army, I popped smoke. <laughs> I left. And um, which is, you know, in Tennessee is kind of an easy thing to do because they're in really, you don't really register as a Republican. You just sort of walk into a primary and you designate which primary candidate, which primary race you're going to vote for. But I didn't want to hmm. publicly identify with the GOP. And so that was 2016. And and five years later, I, I still don't. That's that's fascinating. I, you know, I just was like, oh, let's learn a bit about your background, move on to some of your um, more uh, critical thinking on the division we have today. But you've honestly opened up so many more questions for me. I'm so curious. <laughs> why did you, as a Harvard lawyer, I might not be saying this term correctly, but a Harvard grad in law, why did you join the military at that point? Well, I had this sense of conviction. So this was late 05, which I was 36 years old. <laughs> yeah. It's not and, the standard um, times. You know, t the no, typical no. is you enlist, you're 18. You... Yeah. It might be the not the standard time. It might be the insane time to do it, but it's not the standard time. <laughs> um, but I just had this. Uh, there were a m number of news reports around 05 when the um, – Iraq war was really going south. I mean, things were going mm. badly in 05. And I, um, and you know, the armies was having trouble recruiting. They raised their maximum recruiting age to 35, which meant that you could get an age waiver above that. And I just had this overpowering sense of conviction that I needed to, I couldn't keep in good conscience supporting a war that I wasn't willing to fight. Mm. And, um, I just had this sense of conviction that why, you know, why would I was, you know, healthy, able-bodied American male. Why would I just presume that everybody else should go and not me? And so, um, you know, my wife came to that same point of view. And and so I, I walked into a recruiting office in the late fall of 2005 as an overweight, balding lawyer and said, <laughs> hey, I want to. I want to sign up for the JAG Corps, you know, Army Army lawyers. And they had no idea what to do with me. They're used to, you know, recruiting infantry, um, you know, guys right out of high school and, and all of this. And so they sent me to get an Army physical, and I kind of had to Google my way into the military. <laughs> and so <laughs> I passed the Army physical literally by the skin of my teeth, started to get into shape to go to uh, Officer Basic, and sort of figured out on my own how to get an age waiver, how to submit an application packet. And the whole thing took five months from start to finish uh, for me to to be ready to, I was sworn in in April and then went to officer basic at Fort Lee in, in May. And so between that sort of October, well, it was about six, seven months between that late October of 05 till, till, uh, until, you know, middle of May when I went to Fort Lee I had to get in shape. I had to lose some weight. <laughs> and that was Googling my way into the military was the easy part. The hard part was like um, transforming my body to be ready for officer basic. And got us out drinking. And that I was sweet so Tennessee sweet tea. Oh, yeah. I was so <laughs> sedentary. 
because <laughs> I'd been so busy in my law practice that I'd I used to play in a basketball league and and you know I'd played basketball constantly my whole life and I'd sort of stopped playing basketball and that was the main way I stayed mm-hmm. in shape that I went for a one mile run to start the process of working my way into shape. And one, like a one quarter of the way through it, I pulled a hamstring. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Just, it was so bad, <laughs> but I, I kept at it. I kept at it. I kept at it. And you know, by the time I got to basic, I was in good shape and was able to make it through fine. Although, you know, there's not going to be any Michael Bay training montages of my time. And <laughs> Oh, if only we had we could cut to that right now. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so, so you enlist, and then the other thing I'm very curious about is, and and I want to hear some pushback on this because from you because the typical impression is oh, s- someone enlists in the military and they either stay with a similar worldview or they become more entrenched in their worldview. They become more conservative or more radical. And that is certainly the a lot of the um, dialogue today. But so you joined and you became more central and withdrew from that conservative leaning in, in a way. How, and you, well, you, you talked talk a bit less... about this, but like maybe dive into that yeah. a little more because I'm very, it's very fascinating. Yeah, I became less partisan. I didn't, be- okay. so I think I see a difference okay. between a partisanship and philosophy. So I was still philosophically conservative, classical liberal. Um, But that, you know, as we've learned, I mean, ideology and partisanship don't necessarily go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been a lot of big philosophical changes in the GOP in the last five or six years. But, you know, the thing that I would say about the military is that it has the diversity that universities claim that they have and don't. So hmm. universities in the United States have people, they, you know, they work really hard to, especially elite universities, to have entering class, to have classes that are, that reflect sort of the, the ethnic and gender makeup of American life. They don't do it, you know, they don't, you know, they don't do it um, perfectly no entity can do it perfectly but they work really hard at it they work really hard to increase participation by uh you know historically marginalized groups but what they don't work hard at at all and what they don't really have at all is any kind of truly meaningful ideological diversity and some folks might hear that and go yeah there's you know lots of people disagree with each other on college campuses and yeah, sure. I mean, there is a difference between left and far left, <laughs> of course, but there's a massive underrepresentation of center right to right wing views in American faculties, for example, in the student mm-hmm. body of elite universities. So what you end up having is, you know, you have a, a lot of ethnic diversity or, you know, you'll have diversity on the basis of gender and you will not have nearly as much diversity in thought and ideas. And the military is different. The military has uh, a really wide amount of ethnic diversity, racial diversity. And it also has a lot of, a just you can't assume what somebody is going to think about anything hmm. <laughs> in the military. You really can't. Now, you might have the officer corps historically a little bit more right-leaning than, you know, your median member of the American public. That's much less true, say, for example, of the enlisted ranks. 
but uh, you can't make assumptions. It's not overwhelming. And so, you know, when I was there, um, I was spent a year working in in very close, you know, ten, close close quarters, tense, incredibly tense situations with literally people from every point of view and every walk of life. And we were united by a common purpose of accomplishing the mission that we were there to accomplish. But, you know, for example, my roommate, the person I became closest to when I was deployed, Mexican-American immigrant, agnostic, Democrat, <laughs> and I'm white evangelical, Christian, you know, white evangelical at the time, Republican. I mean, we're very different. Yeah. And we were, we became incredibly close. And, and when we came back home, it was, um, late 08. I, I came back home late 08. He came back home really early 09. And sort of my re redeployment present to him is I had some connections. I was able to get him some pre prime tickets for the Obama inaugural. And, he rewarded me by sending me a video of him singing the goodbye song, you know, na 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 na. Hey hey hey, goodbye to him singing that to George W. Bush as Bush lifted <laughs> off from the White House the last time. So you end up working with people from all walks of life, and that's why you know when people ask me, "Do you think you know the military is a good experience?" I I say, yeah, I believe it's a, I think it's a good experience on a number of grounds. Um, but that's one of them. Yeah. Well, that's certainly, it's certainly a very interesting story there. Um, let's, I'd like to move on a bit to some of the things you bring up in your book. And I, so I've read a lot preparing for this, but I, to be honest, I haven't read the book, but I'm I'm pretty familiar that in the prologue, at least or in the beginning, you describe two different viewpoints: the 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 quintessential left and right. So maybe walk us through a little bit about what does each viewpoint believe in themselves, and what do they believe about the other? Yeah, so this is a really key part of the book, and it's right there in the first chapter. And what I try to do, because I know that I have people who read the who read what I write from the left. And I know that I have people who read what I write from the right. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give left-wing readers an insight into what right-wing Americans think and give and why they feel angry and why they feel aggrieved. And I try to give, um, you know, vice versa. I'm trying to give the other side the same kind of insight. And so I, what I kind of walk through is a narrative of grievance a narrative of grievance that is rooted in um, the perceptions that each side has of the other and why they have those perceptions. Um, that in other words, that these things are not rooted, the, these, these grievances, for example, are rooted in actual things. So for example, a lot of people on the right take real umbrage at the idea that anyone would think that opposition to Barack Obama was based at all on racism. That no, 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 we are not racist. We're not racist. We're absolutely not racist. We uh, we just disagreed with his policies, same way we disagreed with Bill Clinton's policies, for example. Um, but then what I try to do is I say, you know, wait a minute, what what's this birtherism stuff? What is the reasonable explanation for the widespread mm -hmm. sense with no meaningful 
evidence at all <laughs> that Barack Obama was just not from here, you know, that he was from out, you know, that he was, you know, that he was somebody that was, you know, fundamentally not American. And that birtherism, that widespread birtherism, for example, there's just no good explanation for mm -hmm. it. Like there's no explanation that's like, oh, I totally understand that. That's completely reasonable. No, <laughs> there's nothing about it that's reasonable. And so if you're on the left and you see all this birtherism and you're also, by the way, not focused on your own side's flaws at all, um, then you're going to look at that and go, what's wrong with these people? And then, you know, one of the things that I, I, I talk about is that, you know, for example, that there are many different instances in American public life where people have been, you know, publicly roasted just distract people where you know cancel culture people are trying to destroy other people's lives and careers for no good reason and you know um the if you're on the right for example people always talk about covington catholic you know that these high school kids are minding their own business and a weird confrontation happens that they don't really know how to respond to in the on the capitol mall i mean on that why in the mall in washington dc and and the media rips them to shreds. Their lives are turned upside down. They're just, you know, their families are under siege and for no good reason at all, at all. And that's something that actually happened in, in a lot of, you know, right-wing spaces. And there was no justification for it. There wasn't. And in a lot of right-wing spaces, people say, look, see what they will even try to destroy the lives of high school kids. That's what they do. And so, you know, uh, and talk about violence, you know, the, the right will say, well, look, the left is stoking violence and somebody tried to assassinate a good chunk of the, you know, GOP congressional delegation at a baseball field. That actually happened. A left-wing radicalized Bernie Sanders supporter actually did try to kill um, a, many members of Congress. And then the left will say, well, look at all this radicalized hatred on the right. I mean, members of the alt-right have committed or attempted and attempted to commit mass murder you know so it goes back and forth and it's not a it's not the argument is not and this is one thing that i try to make very clear i'm not saying that i'm evaluating all of these things that have happened and say both sides are equally at fault i i, I don't believe that both sides are equally at fault but what i do say is that both sides have a narrative of fault and and grievance that is rooted in actual events things that actually occurred and until you can understand that you can't understand the intensity of the disagreement in this country because it's not about do i want a 45 percent uh, top marginal income tax rate versus a 40 percent or 35 percent that's not what's driving this anger mm -hmm. that's not it or do I want single parent health care or do I want expanded Medicaid? That's not what's driving this animosity. It's that sense of grievance. And in your view, how did this grievance begin and where potential are we headed? Are we heading towards, you know what, the, the conservatives killed my uncle or, hey, those, those, those liberals, you, might be. you know, murdered my aunt. We might, I hope not. Certainly hope not. <laughs> we're, we're still, we're not, we're no. not there yet. And we've got a ways to go before we're there. Although January 6th showed us we might be closer than we think. Um, and a lot of the rioting over this past summer told us it might be closer than we think. But the, so 
there's so many factors in play here. Um, and I walk, I kind of walk through them in my book. So there's no one simple explanation, but. Oh, David, we can't, if you sort of simplify this down to one sentence. (laughs) No, no. Um, but I can I can say that a bunch of things have combined together to create a one sentence diagnosis, which is there is no single truly important cultural, political or religious force that is pulling Americans together more than it's driving them apart. In other words, all of the major cultural, religious, social, political trends right now are pushing us apart. And so why is this happening? I mean, it's a combination of so many things. Somebody will say, oh, it's social media. Well, it's part of that, part of it. Um, it's the big sort. In other words, people moving and living in um, like-minded enclaves, which is an increasing thing. That's part of it. Um, people will say it's secularizing of America. Um, well, that's part of it because America isn't secularizing everywhere at the same rate. We have very religious parts of the country and we have very secular parts of the country and that creates real religious division. So that's part of it. Um, But you combine it all together and what we're beginning to see is the creation of like-minded enclaves, geographic enclaves, um, that create a particular distinct culture. Those cultures believe that they're under an increasing level of threat and the broad availability of information of grievance and offense from every corner of America instantly only heightens that sense of threat. Mm. So, for example, um, in 1968, there was two or three domestic bombings a day, domestic political terror bombings a day. Now, they are mainly property damage, but sometimes people died. We had riots that were far more violent and deadly than anything we saw in 2020 and 1968. But by and large, if I'm living in say Lexington, I was, um, I grew up in a small town near Lexington, Kentucky. So I'll just use Lexington as an example. If I'm living in Lexington, Kentucky, and I'm getting my news from the Lexington Herald leader and maybe, you know, uh, the 30 minute nightly news broadcast, I don't know of every mail bomb in Des Moines. I don't know of every riot in, Um, a neighborhood in New Jersey. I just don't know about it. Um, I'm focused. I get the news about what's impacting me and mine immediately around me. And then a sort of a broad overview of what's happening. Now I might know enough to know things are bad. I'm, I'm going to know enough to know that there's upheaval and there's, but everything that happens, no, I don't know about it. Now a kid can get a MAGA hat knocked off his head in a Burger King in Des Moines. And if I'm sitting in Franklin, Tennessee, not only am I going to know about it instantly, I'm going to, I'm not only am I going to know about it instantly, I'm going to often have live video footage or near close to live video footage of the event in its aftermath. And so I always have ammunition in real time to say, look, see, that's how bad Hmm. they are. Or let's take a lot of the, the battles that we've seen over critical race theory. It's very difficult to know how widespread critical race theory truly is, but it feels widespread because now every single corporate PowerPoint that includes CRT issues, you can upload into Twitter and see it instantly. Or every single weird comment at a school board meeting in a county 800 miles from you, you're gonna know about immediately. So it's always gonna feel real. It's always gonna feel immediate. And then, so then because we have such a big country 
there's always somebody somewhere doing something outrageous on the <laughs> other side. So you have endless ammunition. You have endless fuel for the fire that if you're already angry at the other side, it, you're going to get your priors reinforced online every single day. And that is one of the things that when you combine it with all these other trends is just absolutely driving us apart. Well, I also, I'm, when you say that, it also makes me think of not only do we have this ammunition at our disposal every moment in the palms of our hand, as you just said, but we've got the, this incredibly powerful computing technology and algorithms that are inundating us and because that's how we stay engaged online is through uh, emotional excitement and anger and passion. And so it, how do you even fight? And this might not even be a question necessarily for your wheelhouse, but like how do you even fight something like that where you have billions of, of dollars backing these for-profit ventures that are incentivized to make us react in this way constantly? I mean, they're just giving us what we exactly. already want. <laughs> so, you know, this is something that's going, that goes back to way before the social media era was, you know, there's this saying in local news, if it bleeds, it leads. And so, you know, news team five, there was a shooting mm -hmm. at the, you know, so that was the thing that, that always led because people had a desire. That's what people wanted to see. That's what people were more curious about. And so what then social media does, it just scales all that up. I, I like the way uh, somebody describes social media as sort of putting human nature mm. on blast. And it's it's just, we get, a, we get a look at ourselves in the mirror in many ways on social media. And, and, and a lot of it depends on the particular platform because each platform sort of has a, diff, a distinct culture and a distinct user base. And so Twitter is disproportionately that small slice of Americans who are very politically uh, um, radicalized. So Twitter is a constant look at the state of mind of hyper-political Americans. And it's often not very pretty. <laughs> um, Facebook is much more a, a look or a window into the state of mind of rank and file, average everyday, older Americans. So um, Facebook's user base tends to be older than say Instagram. Instagram has a different culture than Facebook. Reddit has a different culture. YouTube has a different culture. So there's snap, there looks into different and in view and in, in windows into different American subcultures. But, you know, when it comes to Twitter, which is my main platform that I use because I'm very engaged in political and cultural argument. Um, one thing you can do in on a place like Twitter is try to follow equal numbers of people <clears throat> on the other side. So don't create a Twitter cocoon because it is going to absolutely well, distort David, your that's view. That's uncomfortable and that creates it's just work. completely going to distort it. <laughs> I know, but do the work. So for example, um, last summer when the riots, the, uh, the riots after George, George Floyd's mm -hmm. murder uh, kicked off, because I had feeds that were about half progressive and half conservative, I was able to gain an insight into the way both sides were viewing that moment in history. And if you 
were on a main, uh, my progressive feed was full of images of cops beating protesters, just one after the other after the other. And so if you were only on a progressive feed at that moment, what would you think? You You would be thinking that what we were facing wasn't so much an outbreak of rioting as an outbreak of police violence against protesters. Well, then my feed on the right was just video after video after video of bricks going through windows, of people looting stores, of protesters attacking police. And so on. if you're on the right, you would say, what we're facing right now is just unrestrained anarchy lawlessness for no good reason. You know, for this is, and so that on the one hand, you said you would have on the left this, that the police are attacking protesters. And then on the right, you have these protesters are attacking their communities. And the, 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 re, the reality was both things were happening. Both things were happening. But one side was emphasizing one of those things and the other side was emphasizing the other one of those things when both of these things were happening. And so you saw this weird thing on the left that there was this sort of desire to suppress condemning the rioting when the rioting should have been condemned very vocally because they didn't feel like that was the main story. And then on the right, you had this thing that was not condemning the actions of police brutality that were actually there because that might distract from the real story, which was the rioting. And so, um, you know, you were perpetuating these two echo chambers that were increasingly mm-hmm. diametrically opposed when the reality was there there were there was police brutality that should have been condemned and there was rioting that should have been condemned and the fact of the matter is that we shouldn't refuse to condemn unlawful violence because we're worried about who that helps mm-hmm. if that makes sense we should not be worried about saying the right you know calling out an injustice or calling out lawless violence because we're then worried about who that helps um and you see this in the aftermath of the January 6th Capitol takeover. You know, a lot of people on the right are very invested in minimizing that. They're very invested in in making sure that people think that that was no big deal or at the worst that it was somehow an FBI-led inside job or Antifa triggered because they don't want to, they feel like if they actually condemn it to the level that it deserves to be condemned, they'll be helping the left. And we're just, we're trapped yeah. in this dynamic. And so you shouldn't be worried about telling the truth because you're worried that the truth might help somebody that you don't like. Just tell the truth. It's that easy, people. Just tell the truth. No. Just tell it. No, it's not easy. There's nothing easy about it because people will be ticked at you because you've just suddenly helped the left well, or you've suddenly helped the right. But that's and, what's putting us that, in this yeah, doom loop. So you speaking about this just now really makes me think, I'm seeing both sides were trapped in this cycle of creating and defending our own narrative. So the right and the left, it, all the energy yes. is consumed by making sure the narrative is being created properly and defended properly. And both sides are doing this. And, and you just kind of named it this doom loop. And I have a difficult time comprehending how we escape that cycle of making sure we perpetuate and defend 
our own narratives. And and so I guess that's my question to you is like, can you walk me through what are, I understand, I'll, I'll put it this way. I'll obviously backtrack a bit. I understand the steps is forgiving the other side, yeah, being honest and admitting fault and defending others that are perhaps your enemy. Like I, I understand those mechanics, but, but that's not necessarily how the world always works. So perhaps walk me through in a, in a real life scenario, like no. right now in America, how, how can this, how can we come back together? Well, let, let's just be, let's just be real about something right now. And that is the right won't reform the left. Only the left will reform the left. The left won't reform the right. Only the right will reform the right. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't some value in, uh, say, if I'm on the if I'm on the right and I see a negative cultural trend that's coming from the left, that calling out that trend and explaining why it's negative is important. Uh, but I shouldn't have any realistic view that, say, somebody in like the Yale faculty who's articulating a negative idea is going to say, oh, well, that that conservative Christian in Tennessee critiqued it. I'm going to change my ways. Um, we tend to reform from within, and which is one of the reasons why in-group dissenters are often the most ruthlessly mm. attacked because they're the most threatening to any kind of movement within any particular side. So what we have right now is we have a rising illiberal left you know, manifests itself in, in a lot of the things that we've, the excesses that we've seen of cancel culture that um, has manifested itself in numerous ways at the extremes of critical race theory and anti-racism ideology and has created a real atmosphere on many college campuses that suppresses dissent where a lot of people are quite frankly afraid to say what they think. I mean, this is not, mm -hmm. no one's making this up, you know, uh, I have had Yale professors come to me and say exactly these words. I am terrified of my students because they are afraid of being deemed uh, racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic. If they deviate even the slightest bit from an ever evolving set of standards for public discourse. So that's an illiberal move on the left. There's an illiberal move on the right. I mean, that it was that's manifesting itself in conspiracy theories. It's manning of manifested itself in the attempt to, you know, the Capitol Hill insurrection on one six that. So you have these rising illiberal uh, movements. The best way to con uh, to to combat them is from within. So people on the right need to have the courage to call out their quote unquote fellow travelers and say, this is not the way this is not the way and that it's. And so, you know, for example, what's really interesting is I live in a one county north of an area of this country that is very, very, very anti-COVID vaccine. So it has some of the lowest percentages of COVID vaccine uptake. What what would a number in the country? Like and a lot like, of that is, is a product of sort of this five percent. I haven't looked at the latest, but you're talking about maybe only roughly half the population. Um, and and so, you know, in that circumstance, that's something that can take people's lives, right? I mean, so is the real emphasis 
in that county if I'm somebody who's really concerned with the well-being of my community? Is my emphasis going to be, hey, what we need to do is unite around fighting critical race theory, which is yeah. not an issue there. <laughs> the number of critical race theorists in that community is very low. It's very, very low. Or do we need to kind of say, hey, we need to take care of each other and get this vaccine and fight against this sort of anti-vax, culture war, COVID political correctness? Well, the, I think the answer is obvious. But then you'll have somebody up and say, some of these radicalized environments in blue America that they take, they feel really good about themselves because they're pro-vaccine and that they're all vaccinated. They feel really great about themselves. But they are, you know, they're keeping schools closed for no good reason. Um, they're deeply, they're they're increasingly intolerant of dissent on the basis of, of race. Now, notice, to call these things out is not to say that one is less important, to say that those are equivalent. Like, for example, I think anti-vaxxing is one of the foremost problems in the United States of America. Like, it's costing lives. That to me is far more consequential than whether or not the diversity, equity, inclusion PowerPoints I'm looking at at work are intolerant or not, okay? So, but here's my question. If I'm in a community that is fully vaxxed, but dealing with, in that is increasingly intolerant, one of my responsibilities in that fully vaxxed, increasingly intolerant communities is to deal with the intolerance. Because my attitudes about vaxxing in that community aren't impacting and aren't going to impact anyone in the communities close to Certainly. where I live. And I Is think this it's, making sense? That's a level of nuance um, that I I fail to see how um, the general American discourse can attain at this moment. And maybe that's, I don't know if I'm looking down on people or anything. I definitely don't that, intend to or want to. But I have a I have a hard time seeing that level, of, and that's not even that that intensely nuanced. Let's be honest; it's um, that's just like basic rational thought. I have a hard time seeing most people embrace that level of nuance and be like, "Oh yes, that's how I'm going to handle my public discourse on Twitter." Well, leadership matters a lot, and we can't, you know. So, one of the things that we're seeing, like, let's take the vaccine example. There's a big gap between, in the evangelical church, pastors' attitudes towards vaccine and the congregation's attitudes towards vaccine. So there's a study from the National Association of Evangelicals that ind indicates that 95% of, of evangelical leaders are take, wanting to take the vaccine or enthusiastic about the vaccine. That's about a 40-point higher ratio than your rank-and-file evangelicals. 40. 40 points. Oh, wow. And so there's a real need for courageous leadership, to be frank, to be honest. Leadership really matters. I mean, this is one thing that I have revised a lot of my thinking about over the years. And and I used to be much less, I, I knew that leadership mattered. I knew that leaders could set a tone. I knew that leaders could influence a culture. I didn't realize how much that was true until the Trump era. When I began to see sort of the Trump example, the Trump moral example, the Trump rhetorical example, um, the Trump example in on multiple fronts leak down into the absolute 
most grassroots part of the conservative and Republican culture where sort of Trumpism, not just as a sort of Trumpism is a skeptical of free trade and foreign intervention. No, Trumpism as in the way in which the man interacts with his fellow human beings became a big part of the culture, even at the most grassroots level of the GOP. And so leadership really matters. Mm. And so that's one of the reasons why I think the, at least in what's going to be the culture of the Republican Party, the 2024 primaries are just going to matter a ton. They're just going to matter a ton because leadership matters a lot. And it is very hard. It is very hard to lead in a direction that is away from the current cultural streams because you're going to get attacked. You're going to get attacked viciously, frequently, constantly. It is very difficult, but you got to hang in there. You got to hang in there. And, you know, one of the things that we saw was a lot of courageous leadership um, kept the Southern Baptist Convention just this past weekend from taking some pretty disastrous and divisive steps into becoming almost a pure culture war organization. And it took some ferociously mm. courageous leadership, um, people standing up and saying what they believed, knowing that they were going to get some pretty considerable slings and arrows, calling that convention into something higher and better. And you know what? It didn't, the, you know, the, the war isn't over, but a battle, a very important battle was won. A very important battle was won. And I don't think the, the mainstream media quite grasps how important it was what happened in Nashville this week when the Baptist, um, the SBC, time and time and time again, turned away from hardcore fundamentalist culture war towards and more towards more um, Christ-centered evangelical, you know, a, a Christ-centered evangelical culture over a culture war-centered fundamentalist culture. Yeah. Certainly. Well, I think the the point you made of the the factions with from within ha, are the only one that can have that can have that chance of changing. The left can't change the right. Right can't change the left. I think that is a fundamental, extremely important point that hopefully that can settle into America. Um, and I, I'd like to move on, but before I do want to point out, um, just as a note to listeners, you yourself have been very critical of the institution of the church in America, and you have even called the January 6th insurrection a Christian insurrection. So uh, you you have a lot of thoughts on this. I would encourage other folks to go check out some of your work on that, where it's, it's again, very nuanced, and you're critiquing a lot of what that, um, you know, your word's so much better than mine, but I, I'd like to move on to um, a question I'm very interested in is there's so many polls right now that show 50 some odd percent of Republicans believe right. the election was stolen. And so I just am wrestling with if half or the majority or whatever the number is of Republicans believe that in essence voting doesn't matter anymore, what's going to happen? I think it's it's a very important question, and it's I see it ignored too much right now. It's just kind of like, well, we'll get to that in 2024. We're dealing with stuff now, but this is a big one. 
if there's that much passion and that much intensity and it can't be focused into a democratic manner anymore, how is it going to release itself? Well, one way it releases itself is what we saw on January 6th. <laughs> I mean, that's that's one way it happens. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, one of the really negative trends of the last uh, 20 years is that the losing side in a presidential contest, there are strong elements within each faction of American politics that treat victories by the oppos opposition as fundamentally illegitimate. So um, there are many people who say that George W. Bush's election in 2000 was essentially stolen, that he, through his legal tactics and the quote-unquote Brooks Brothers riot in 2000, which was not a riot, but, um, but the Brooks Brothers riot in 2000 and his legal tactics combined with the Supreme Court stole a victory from Al Gore. Um, in 2004, there were conspiracy theories around, is it pronounced Diebold? Maybe Diebold voting machines in Ohio, that it was a stolen election from John Kerry. Uh, in 2016, there was, after 2016, there were a very large percentage of Democratic voters who believed that essentially Russia hacked the election, either through its interference that it, it, um, created enough of a, a seismic impact on the American electorate to, that Americans voted in a particular way or, the, you know, that it influenced how people voted or, you know, there were some small percent, there were some percentage Democrats who believed that Russia literally hacked voting machines without, you know, there was no evidence that they did that. Now, by 2020, um, the idea that, and then let's go back to, to Barack Obama, I mean, going back to birtherism, that wasn't quite an election conspiracy theory, but that was a conspiracy theory that said that, this, that he wasn't even qualified to hold office, that there was a large percentage of Republicans who said mm -hmm. he's not qualified, he's an illegal president because of birtherism. Now, in 2020 was when we really saw it ramp up, this sort of background level of mistrust in elections that has been manifesting itself for 20 years, turned into actual violence. It turned into an actual effort to overturn an American election in a meaningful and profound way. And so in that sense, I, I worry that we crossed a Rubicon, that it went from sort of online fighting and online conspiracy theorizing and, you know, silly, um, fringy blog posts to actual action in the streets and an actual attack on the capital of the United States of America, which is why I think that 1-6 is such a historically significant event, is that it showed, you tell people enough, you tell people long enough that American democracy is broken and that elections are stolen and the country is being stolen and some percentage of people start to act on that. And that's, you know, one thing that we learned in 2020. And, you know, one of the reasons why it's so important for the response to 2020 to be so decisive. In other words, find the people who did this, prosecute the people who did this, um, you know, don't overcharge, don't violate their civil liberties, but find and prosecute people who actually broke the law um, and do so diligently and do so relentlessly until you find the people who did it. Um, you have to have, you know, there's a concept going all the way back to the American founding called ordered liberty. Um, you know, liberty thrives, liberty thrives, and we have a nation that, um, liberty thrives when there is a degree of self-government. 
And when, you know, as, as John Adams said, there's a um, constitution was made for a moral and religious people is wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. And so, you know, what we need to have is a, is a self-governing, you know, a, a, a degree of moral um, purpose and virtue in American, the American citizenry to have this, you know, Republican, smaller Republican experiment continue and thrive. But also when people step out of the boundaries of discourse and debate and argument and actually move towards insurrection, there has to be a legal response to that. There has to be. Um, and so we'll see what happens in the future, but I, I, I really fear we crossed a Rubicon on January 6th. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned <clears throat> that transition between online meme online warriors into perhaps real world warriors. And that makes me think of QAnon and its continual um, transitions and morphing because so many QAnon adherents believe that they are virtual warriors and it is their duty to push forth an agenda via online methods. And I wonder how long until that changes because they view there's going to be a reckoning or they believe there's a reckoning a, a coming where there's a few different versions but generally the u.s military will take over and reestablish the order and get rid of the deep state cabal all, all these things so if that continually doesn't happen at what point does this faction come online well it already has i mean <laughs> the the opposite yeah of it already line. has so if you look at the alt-right the rise of the alt-right back in 2015, 2016. And I was sitting there waving the warning flag. There's this racist, white nationalist side of the extreme right that is rising online. And a lot of people are like, it's just online. It's just online. It's just online. Well, for a lot of people... Oh, and it's so easy for folks. They're just like, oh, they just, they believe the earth is flat. Who yeah, cares? It's silliness. Obviously, that's different from QAnon, yeah. but... It's easy to put them in a box and stop yeah, thinking about it. Yeah, if you it. can say it's just online, well, then you say ignore it. But the lo that's not the way the logic of this works. Most people will stay online because most people don't want to risk their lives, right? <laughs> so most people will just stay online because they don't they want to don't want to risk their lives or liberty. But if you engage in an, in, in an enormous amount of extremist rhetoric, then some people are going to say. Well, if you really believe what you're saying, you should do more than tweet about it, right? So we began to see alt-right attacks, alt-right terror attacks. I mean, for example, New Zealand, Christchurch, um, synagogue in, in Poway, California, the, um, the Walmart shooting in El Paso, Texas. You began to see an increasing amount of online radicalism going in real world. We had... Uh, Boogaloo Boys, who are the people who are trying to spark a second civil war, multiple killings of law enforcement officers during the summer riots, where they tried to attribute that to the rioters to help trigger, um, you know, bloodshed in the streets. And so a lot of this stuff that was, quote unquote, just online because it was trafficking and ideas that if they really believed them would mean that you should do more than tweet. Um then began to go into real world and it culminated in that one six attack. But that's not, you know, that wasn't, you know, we were seeing armed protesters outside of people's homes, election officials' homes. We had seen 
the armed takeover of the Michigan State House during the pandemic and anti-lockdown protests. So we're already seeing, and this just happened. I mean, it never made any sense to me why anyone would say it would just stay online when we had spent the entire freaking war on terror showing how the propagation and spread of extremist ideologies within Islam manifested themselves eventually in terror attacks and that extremist ideas create extremist actions. This is total common sense. And then people are turning around and saying, but well, but you know, not here in America, not on the right. What are you talking about? Of course it is. And so it was the most predictable thing in the world. And it's one reason why I worry that the right's going to talk itself back into political violence is it just continues to engage in the most catastrophic rhetoric about the fate of this country. And um, you're going to talk unbalanced people into doing evil and violent things. Well, it's about time to wrap up, David. And this has truly been a fascinating conversation. And I'd like to re-highlight again what you said earlier of the right can only heal the right, the left can only heal the left of these narratives which are perpetuating the idea that my way is the only way and we need to get rid of all those other people. The place would be better without them. Um, and and you, you mentioned what thought leaders and leaders and some of what the platform can do about talking down and critiquing some of these more violent and um, divisive ideas from within. What can the regular person do? Well, you know, the regular person can do some of the things that I already talked about, like try to diversify your newsfeed. <laughs> it's a good one. Um, if you don't know what you think about a particular idea or issue that's new to you, seek out both sides on it. Um, I kind of have a rule of thumb that if I hear a new idea or about a new idea, I try to learn about that idea from the idea's proponents before I learn about it from their opponents. Um, because what we often end up doing is if we hear about a new idea or thought from the other side of the aisle, the first thing we do is we run to our favorite website on our side to see how we can debunk it. And that's not how you learn. Mm. Um, and so I think that one of the things we can do is seek out the best expression of the opposing side's point of view. Um, we can diversify our news feeds, um, learn about ideas from the ideas advocates more than from its opponents. Read both sides, but read the advocate first. And then, uh, you know, the other thing is we just have to, um, one of the things that is really driving our discourse is the fact that we have a class of political hobbyists in the United States. They tend to be disproportionately um, upper middle class, disproportionately white, disproportionately educated. They just love to go at each other online and, and they just marinate in these online battles and wars. And, you know, I think it's and very- it certainly drives views. Pardon? It certainly drives views. And so, you know, to the extent that you possibly can, to the extent that you have any platform or influence at all, um, trying to keep our disputes in perspective, um, not everything's an emergency. Um, It is not the case that everyone hates you and wants you dead. (laughs) And to just learn to chill out a little bit, to try to put things in historical perspective, to try to understand historical perspective. And as much as possible... Um, there's this great phrase that I heard from a federal judge years ago, early in my legal career, and it's some of the best advice I've ever gotten about the art of persuasion. And he said, 
learn to speak with regret and not outrage. And he said, you know, lawyers, young lawyers, and a lot of you guys who listen, you're kind of lawyers online. You're lawyers for your point of view. You're constantly arguing, advocating, arguing, advocating. And a lot of lawyers, especially young lawyers, they just go straight to outrage all the time. And what ends up happening mm -hmm. is on the, sometimes what it does, it just flat out discredits what you say because not everything's an outrage, let's be honest. Or it ends up stoking people into a frenzy that's unreasonable. And what the judge was saying is, if you speak with regret, more people are going to listen to you. You know, more people are going to listen to you because regret is the, the inherent tone of regret is more a reasonable tone. And the other thing he said is that when something is actually outrageous, they will listen to you more than they would if you were constantly at volume, you know, at, at 10 out of 10 on the volume. Oh, wait. Bradford is really angry. This must be something important because he rarely gets angry. <laughs> and so what you do is you save, you husband that sort of outrage and you, it's a, it's, it's, and look at it this way, that it is when you are, it's like the, the boy who cried wolf. If you're always outraged, nothing's outrageous. Um, and you know, sadly though, on Twitter, if you're always outraged, that means everything is outrageous, <laughs> but everything isn't. But if you sort of husband your anger, if you hold it in for when things are truly egregious, um, people will pay attention when it is truly egregious. They will actually be moved to act when it is truly outrageous. But if you're just outrageous, outraged all the time, yeah, you'll gather a tribe around you. You'll gather a little, you'll gather a following. Um, but you'll you'll often lose influence in in an interesting way because you're just reinforcing your cocoon. You're not changing the world. You're just making the walls of your cocoon thicker. Mm -hmm. I really like that. So where where can folks find more of your work? If perhaps on social media or some of your written and uh, and even your book. Yeah. So uh, the book Divided Books. We Fall is available on Amazon. Quickest easiest way to find it. Um, Follow me on Twitter after I just talked about how Twitter can be toxic. Follow me on Twitter <laughs> at David A. French. <laughs> um, and then you can catch all my work on thedispatch.com. Wonderful. Well, I suppose in to keep things on point, to make sure that we get a lot of views on this, we should probably suddenly get outrageous with each other and maybe one of us can uh, hang up and storm off the call. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Bradford or I'll just say thanks for joining <laughs> and just put the headline on it you know when you when you tweet it out watch me destroy David French exactly yeah maybe you can send me a headshot of you looking really angry and then I'll, I'll <laughs> or maybe shocked <laughs> and, and dismayed the thumbnail. yeah <laughs> yeah wonderful well David seriously thank you so much for joining you are 100% a voice of reason and I definitely learned a lot today. I learned a lot preparing for this and I'm going to continue to read your work uh, moving in the future. And I, I hope many of the listeners do. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Sure. Awesome. Well, you have a good rest of the day. All right. Thank you. Thank you for watching to the very end. 
If you like our content, make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review. It is the best way to help us reach the most people possible, and that way we can keep producing content every week. Make sure to drop a comment below of who you'd like us to interview next, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.